So for several uh, months, we've been in the book of Daniel, and um, in Daniel chapter 7 through 12, Daniel's going to talk a lot about the future, and it's interesting when I think about the, pe- uh, the future, uh, one of the things I've noticed is that we are a people that are really fascinated with predictions and the future. In fact, every day we try to predict the weather uh, using everything from sophisticated radar to the almanac to even occasionally a groundhog, Right? Uh, in fact, my son Aaron uh, makes a living predicting the weather as a meteorologist with the National Weather Service. And what I think is so cool about that is that uh, there's no pressure, right? Because you, you and I, you kind of expect him to get that wrong, right? So there's lots of grace when somebody predicts the weather and that doesn't happen. I think it'd be kind of nice not to have that kind of pressure. Every year, sportscasters try to predict who's going to win the Super Bowl or the World Series or the NBA Finals. Financial planners try to predict what's going to happen in the stock market tomorrow or in the next season of its life. I mean, really, there is an incurable, unstoppable hunger within each of us to know the future. And this is why we consult psychics. It's why we read horoscopes. It's why we look to the stars. And it's why we read fortune cookies. But you also know this, that predicting is risky business, right? In fact, there's an economist by the name of Daniel Fiedler who's famous for something called Fiedler's Forecasting Rules. And here's his four forecasting rules. He said this, number one, it's, difficult, it's very difficult to forecast, especially regarding the future. Number two, he says, he who lives by the crystal ball soon learns to eat ground glass. Number three, the moment you forecast, you know you're going to be wrong. You just don't know when or which direction. And then number four, he says, if you're ever right, never let them forget it, right? Because it's just so difficult, you know, to do. And there's actually a book that's been written by a guy by the name of Graham Noun called The World's Worst Predictions. And uh, I want to give you a few just right out of his book. So in 1939, the New York Times said this. They said that the problem with television was that people would have to glue their eyes to a screen and that the average American would never have or make time for that. That was a prediction from 1939. Business Week in 1958 said this, with over 50 foreign cars already on sale here, the Japanese auto industry is, is likely to never carve out a big slice of the U.S. auto market. Frank Knox, who was the U.S. Secretary of the Navy, said on December 4th, 1941 right before Pearl Harbor he said whatever happens the U.S. Navy is not going to be caught napping on October 16, 1929 economist Irving Fisher said this stocks have reached what looks like a permanently high plateau this was in 1929 a former president of IBM of all uh, places predicted this. He said, I see a demand for no more than five personal computers. Philip Franklin, who was the White Star Line vice president, predicted in 1912, he said, there is no danger the Titanic will sink, 
the boat is unsinkable and nothing but inconvenience will ever be suffered by any of its passengers. Oops. All right? Now listen, I don't know what your vision of the future is. You know, I don't know whether it's bleak or whether it's hopeful. Um, but one of my favorite movies is a classic by the name of City Slickers. It's an older movie. In it, Billy Crystal plays Mitch, a 39-year-old account executive who feels he's lost his purpose and zest for living. So in this scene, Mitch is standing in front of a class of his uh, son's classmates, and he's sharing with them what he does for a living. But the problem is he's very disenchanted you know, with what he does for a living, right? So in this scene, he begins, he kind of veers off course and just begins to talk about not only his future the way he envisions it, but the future of these kids as well. So let's check out Mitch's hope or vision for the future. Let's watch together. Mr. Robin. value this time in your life, kid. But this is the time in your life when you still have your choices. And it goes by so fast. When you're a teenager, you think you can do anything, and you do. Your 20s are a blur. 30s, you raise your family, you make a little money, and you think to yourself, what happened to my 20s? 40s, you grow a little pot belly, you grow another chin. The music starts to get too loud. One of your old girlfriends from high school becomes a grandmother. 50s, you have a minor surgery. You'll call it a procedure, but it's a surgery. 60s, you'll have a major surgery. The music is still loud, but it doesn't matter because you can't hear it anyway. 70s, you and the wife retire to Fort Lauderdale. Start eating dinner at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You have lunch around 10, breakfast the night before. Spend most of your time wandering around malls looking for the ultimate soft yogurts and muttering, how come the kids don't call? How come the kids don't call? The 80s, you'll have a major stroke. You end up babbling to some Jamaican nurse who your wife can't stand, but who you call mama. Any questions? <laughs> well, don't you guys feel better now as you think about his vision, you know, of the future? I love that clip. Anyway, hopefully you're in a better place right now than Mitch, right? Uh, at least I hope you are. Now, again, we said that for several months we've been in the book of Daniel, and in the last several chapters of this book, God wants his people, and for Daniel, to have an understanding of the future. So God gives Daniel a series of dreams and visions about what's going to take place in the future that Daniel actually writes down and records in Daniel's chapter 7 through Daniel chapter 12. Sometimes this is called prophetic literature, because the prophet, again, is predicting what is going to happen in the future. Now, I believe that the two most important chapters in this whole, in these five, are chapter 7, which is kind of the hinge chapter, and then chapter 12. And that's where we're going to kind of focus today. Now, last week, Pastor Craig kind of walked us through a very familiar story in Daniel 6, uh, that many of you know as Daniel and the lion's den, right? And the king in Daniel 6 uses a great phrase, and he uses this phrase a couple of times in Daniel 6 um, to describe the kind of service that Daniel offers to God 
to describe what he sees happening between uh, Daniel and his God. And it's so instructive. And it's this phrase. I'll show it to you. This is out of Daniel 6.16. So the king, the second half of the verse, the king said to Daniel, may your God, the God whom you serve continually, that's the part I'd like you to I'd like us to think about may the God you serve the God you serve continually rescue you right now um, he, he said the God you serve continually he didn't say the God you serve occasionally or the God you serve sporadically or the God you serve begrudgingly or the God you serve when it's popular to do so he said no the God that you serve continuously and a lot of people I think when they think about serving God continuously they think well you have to become a monk or maybe join a monastery right and I want to remind you that this doesn't mean that Daniel was off serving God in a monastery or far removed from the 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 struggles of real life and real living. Remember, Daniel was a significant leader in the Babylonian world. He learned their language. He studied their culture. He served in their government, right? And yet, without abandoning all of the day-to-day concerns that we all have to struggle and wrestle with, Daniel never forgot, not even for a moment, what was most important, and that was serving God continually. He didn't serve God only when it was convenient or attractive. He didn't serve only when it was politically expedient or because it was popular. He served God continually. He served God even when it cost him something. And I want you to remember as well that Daniel was one of many Israelites captured by King Nebuchadnezzar and taken into exile in Babylon, right? Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, faced seemingly impossible challenges at every single turn. I mean, in other words, how are they going to respond to the king's dietary requirements? How will they interpret the, king, the, the king's strange dreams and visions? How will they respond to the command to worship an idol fashioned in gold? What will happen when Daniel is thrust into the lion's den or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the furnace? I mean, time after time, even as they're facing execution, Daniel doesn't compromise. He remains faithful to God, right? Daniel serves God continually. And as a result, we see God's miraculous power to deliver over and over again. And I think as we think about our future, I think as we think about the future, one of the keys to facing our future well, without fear, to, to having hope in our future, right, is when, when God's people follow Jesus continually, not half-time, not part-time, but when they are full-time followers of Jesus, right? I believe they just gain traction and confidence as it relates to their future. In fact, we actually have a value about this as a church that talks about what it might look like for ordinary men and women if they serve God continually. It's another way of thinking about what that might look like, and we call it joyful service, joyful service. And here's the way we've articulated this. We will serve others with our time, talents, and treasures. And furthermore, 
we will lead the way with our time, talents, and treasures with a reckless generosity that only makes sense in the light of the generosity of God's grace. In other words, we're going we're gonna to serve God by serving others. In other words, the way we're going to show God that we love him is we're going to serve the people that we bump into throughout our day, and we're going to use the very best of our time and our talents and our treasures to serve not just ourselves, but to serve other people, to invest and bring value to the people around us. So this is so key. And so what we're saying is, in other words, we will serve God by serving others. And we're going to serve others with the same kind of reckless generosity in which Jesus has already served me. And you know what kind of generosity that was. He gave to the point of even offering up his one and only life. That's how reckless his generosity was. So I'm going to ask you today, as a way of uh, being a continual follower of Jesus, will you offer up to Jesus the very best of your time, of your talents, and of your treasures. Not just when you have the time. Not just when things settle down. Because we know that things never settle down, do they? Right? Will you serve God with your talents? And not um, just when it's convenient or easy for you. And will you honor God with your treasures? And not just when you can afford it. Or when you have a little extra. And here's why I think this question matters so much. Because one of the things that Daniel tells us is, when it comes to the future is that the future is going to be turbulent. One of the things that Daniel says is, look, expect serious problems in the future. Uh, so I want to look at how he says this. We're going to start, again, we're going to look primarily in Daniel 7 and in Daniel 12 because uh, I believe those are the two most important um, places to look here. But we're going to look at Daniel chapter 7. We're only going to look at two verses and we can deduce a lot from these verses. So here's what Daniel says. In my vision that night, I, Daniel, saw a great storm churning the surface of a great sea with strong winds blowing from every direction. Then four huge beasts came up out of the water, each different than the others. And then Daniel spends several chapters describing each of these beasts. And he, used, he uses terminology like uh, claws and teeth and, um, you know, talons. I mean, he's using just this imagery, like, hey, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there, right? So these verses tell you all you need to know. The future is going to be turbulent. The wind's going to blow. The sea is going to rise, right? I mean, bad things are going to happen. And then Daniel goes on to describe these four beasts as four kingdoms, one on top of the other. And one beast will crush the beast 
that came before. And so there's all this fighting and there's, and, and there's you know, a posturing. This is even really um, pointing to like wars, like when, when countries go to war with one another, when one beast wages war on another. So important to understand that um, God is not promising us or anyone a future filled with rose petals. So when we see things like global pandemics and wildfires destroying hundreds of thousands of acres and hurricanes coming in off the Gulf, um, it, it isn't like any of this is taking God by surprise. And it really shouldn't take us by surprise either. Uh, because Daniel has said that it, the future is going to be difficult. Expect serious problems. Problems with the wind and the sea and beasts that will come out of the sea, right? But, and then he goes on to say um, that these beasts represent different kingdoms and that each of these beasts are going to die. And they're going to die to demonstrate that the kingdoms of men are uh, every kingdom of man, including the United States of America, will have a beginning and it will have an end. It will come to an end. And it's so important to understand this. And then he goes on to say this, that in the middle of all this turbulence, there is going to be a time of judgment. A time of judgment. In fact, um, listen to what Daniel says. This is, we're still in Daniel 7. Oh, no, no. Before we go to that time of judgment, I do want to, um, I want to point out something else Daniel says in Daniel 12 as well, just about our future. In Daniel 12, 1, Daniel says this, Then there will be a time of anguish greater than any since the nations first came into existence. But at that time, every one of your people whose name is written in the book will be rescued. See, this is why we preach Jesus. Because it's going to be so bad that everyone is going to need to be rescued by Jesus. And we're going to talk more about that later. But that's the hope that we have, that no matter how bad it gets, Jesus holds us in his hand. And again, we'll talk more about that. But here's how we know there's going to be a judgment. Listen to what he says in Daniel 7 verses 9 and 10. Daniel says, I watched as thrones were put in place and the ancient one sat down to judge. Now, this is a reference to Jesus. Daniel doesn't recognize him as Jesus, but it's very, very clear that this is who he's talking about, and he begins to describe him, and in his description, we begin to learn some things about this ancient one, or Jesus, our Jesus. Here's what he says. He says, uh, first of all, his clothing was as white as snow. Now, this means that God is completely righteous and completely good. There's no blemish on him. There's no dirt on him. There's no bad in him. Jesus is not capable, or God the Father is not capable of doing anything wrong. He is completely good. He is completely righteous, and everything that he does is good. And in fact, here's what I would add to this. I would, I would say to you, if you look around at the world and you look around at hurricanes and fires and pandemics, 
and you confuse life with God, that is such a huge issue. Because I would say that the belief that God is not good is responsible for more sin than almost any other belief. Because if you don't believe that, that God is good and that he has your best interest at heart when he speaks, you're going to chase after the, the shiny things that everybody else chases after. When people uh, get caught up in uh, things that are um, displeasing to the Father and uh, a trap to themselves, you're gonna, if, you, if you don't believe God is good, you're going to give in to those very same things because you're going to think you're missing out. Like that, because you can't sin as badly, like because all the sin's fun, right? And God doesn't want you to have fun, and so you'll chase after all the things everybody else does if you don't believe deep down in your heart and soul that God is good and He has your best interest at heart. He had your best interest at heart when He sent His Son Jesus, right, to die in your place. So we, we know that he's good because his clothing is white as snow. And then we're told not only that he sat down to judge, which means all of us are accountable to him for how we live our one and only life. Um, by the way, the other thing it means that when he sits down to judge, uh, it means that in a world where justice is hard to come by, where justice is sometimes seen as blind, that one day justice is going to flow like a river when Jesus sits down to judge. One day everything will be made right. No one gets away with anything in the end. But we also learn that as he sits on that throne, he has the wisdom to sit on a throne because we're told his hair was white like wool. This is a statement about the wisdom of our Jesus, that he knows and he knows how to know and that he never makes a mistake and that he is all-knowing, that he knows everything and there isn't anything that he doesn't know. Um, and then we're told this. Uh, it says, he sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire and a river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. So let's kind of stop there because we have a mention of fire here three times. Anytime you see rep repetition like this, this is kind of a biblical writer's way of saying this is really important. You have to pay attention to this. And here he's talking about the power of our Savior. The references to power to fire are references to power, to influence, right? Um, he is all-powerful. In other words, what uh, Daniel's saying here is there is nothing God can't do. There is nothing that he can't do. He is all, Not only does he have all the wisdom in the universe, is he all-knowing, but he is all-powerful. There is nothing he can't do. Uh, and then we're told this, and this just speaks to his importance. Right? We're told this, millions of angels ministered to him. Many millions stood to attend to him. This speaks to the supremacy of Jesus. It speaks to uh, his centrality, both in the universe and in our lives and throughout all eternity. In eternity. And then look at verse 14. It says, he was given authority 
honor and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. And then unlike all these world kingdoms, here's how his kingdom is described. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom, unlike every other kingdom man has ever known, will never be destroyed. See, so one of the things we've seen again and again and again in the book of Daniel is just how temporary the kingdoms of man are, right? So the kingdom of Jerusalem falls to the kingdom of Babylon, and then we see in the book of Daniel that the kingdom of Babylon falls to the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And even in Daniel's visions, there are four kingdoms, four beasts that eventually fall to one another. But here, the Messiah's reign is completely different, completely set apart in that his reign and rule will be eternal. Now, it's so important to understand our Jesus in light of this vision found in Daniel chapter 7, that he is the ancient one. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, and completely and thoroughly good. There is not an ounce of badness in him. And that means I can trust him. And Jesus said as much. So what I want to do is I just want to move to the teaching of Jesus where Jesus essentially says the same thing that Daniel said in Daniel chapter 7 about him. The first teaching we're going to look at from Jesus is found in John 10. We're going to look at four verses there. And here's what Jesus said. He said, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. Now, I want to stop there and make an observation. Jesus says that there is a thief, that you and I have an enemy. And in Ephesians 2, this enemy is called the God of this world. And uh, Jesus says his motivation is he comes to steal. He comes to steal away our legacy in Christ Jesus. He, He comes to bring shame where Jesus has taken that away. He comes to kill. He comes to destroy. And he comes to steal. And he does those things in this world in which we live. See, sometimes people will point to a world where there are pandemics and hurricanes and wildfires, right? And they'll say, well, how can God be good in the presence of a world like that? And we would argue, well, remember that we have an enemy. And the the God of this world, the God who's in control of this world, comes to kill and steal and destroy. And the second thing that we would say is we would say, listen, remember that we live in a world that's been marred and distorted by sin. And even in creation, this world is not the world that God originally created. That this world, in the same way that each person who lives on this world, uh, that the creation has been subjected to futility. Paul writes about this very clearly in Romans chapter 8. And that the world, therefore, has been distorted and marred and off-kilter ever since sin entered into the world and into the picture. And that's another reason why we experience pandemics and hurricanes and wildfires that rage out of control, right? And so in the middle of that kind of world, Jesus acknowledges that. But then look what, how Jesus contrasts his, his mission and his ministry. He says this, But I have come, so in other words, the thief only comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I've come that they might have life and have it 
to the full. I am the good shepherd. What word? What kind of shepherd is Jesus? What's the word that he uses? Good. It's so important that that get down in us. And then he goes on to say, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. You know what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, look, I hold my people in my hand as a shepherd. In a world where pandemics rage and fires rage and winds blow i hold my people in my hand and nothing can snatch them out of my hand absolutely no one or nothing can do that and i want you to note something super important in jesus language here in the original language jesus is using present progressives that really don't get translated well into the English. And here's what I mean by a present progressive. So what Jesus is saying is he's saying this. Hey, I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd keeps laying his life down for his sheep. He keeps on doing that. And the good shepherd keeps talking to his sheep. He keeps doing that, comforting them, reassuring them, right? And then my sheep keep following me they follow me continuously in just the way that daniel was observed to have followed god right my sheep they hear me continuously they follow me continuously they go where i ask them to go continuously they don't stop they don't stop offering up the very, very best of their time, their talents, and their treasures. Not when they, just when they have time, or when they make time, or when it's convenient, or even when they can afford it. And Jesus talked about this so often, you know, when he wanted to um, uh, call people to full devotion to himself. Uh, so important to understand. So one of the other uh, things I want to talk about this morning, as we just think about our Savior, our shepherd, and the call to follow him, is, um, is just this. Whenever Jesus wanted to communicate something powerful, a spiritual truth, he would tell a story. And we're going to look at a story today. It's a short story, so it won't take us long, uh, but... Uh, let me introduce you to, the, to why Jesus told this story. So one day, Jesus was talking to people who were tempted to waste their lives chasing after things that ultimately don't matter and won't last. He was talking to people who were tempted to give themselves away to inferior things instead of to God. So he tells a story about a man who bought lots of stuff and he built bigger and bigger barns to store all of his stuff. And at the end of the story, this man dies before he could get to use any of his stuff. And all of his stuff goes to someone else. He doesn't get to keep any of his stuff. And God calls or labels that lifestyle. God looks down from heaven and calls this man foolish. Now, I think what's so ironic is this man was living the life we chase Monday through Saturday as Americans, right? We all want to be in his position. And in a moment, we'll read the story together. It's really short, and we'll kind of see that 
even more. But what I want you to know is we would have called this man successful. We would have called him driven. But you know what God called him? God called him foolish. He didn't call him immoral. He didn't say it's immoral to have lots of stuff. He just said uh, it's immoral to have lots of stuff and not offer any of that to God. And in fact, so at the end of the story, uh, Jesus said this. This is Luke 12, 21. Jesus says, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. Now, this is the phrase I want us to notice. What would it mean for you and I to be a people that are rich toward God, especially when it comes to our time, our talents, and our treasures? And so I just want to ask the question, are you, as a follower of Jesus, are you rich toward God? Are you, how are you doing with that? Are you regularly offering the very best of your time, your talents, and your treasures to your Savior? Uh, Because Jesus tells a very sobering story to get our attention as a warning in the same way that Daniel is giving us a warning in Daniel chapters 7 through 12 right now uh, the key to this story the reason that jesus tells it like he does is that uh we uh, that we don't we get to keep whatever we offer to god but we don't get to keep what we chase monday through saturday in other words all our stuff we have to give to somebody else or leave to somebody else so jesus says look isn't it foolish to chase after something that can't ever belong to you especially for eternity in the first place like how foolish is that how short-sighted is that right and so here's what Je- so here's the story as jesus tells it I'm, I'm reading from a little different version than you but it'll come behind me so he told them this parable The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And so he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, this is the hinge for the whole story right here. I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. You know what's sobering to me about this is this sounds a lot like retirement. This sounds a lot like our, ver- our view of retirement, right? And so then he goes on to say this, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? The answer is, it's not going to matter to you. You're going to give that, everything you've ever chased your whole life. You're going you're to give to somebody else, right? And then Jesus ends with that phrase, This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Now listen, here's why we know this man had no intention 
to not only use his treasure for God, but not to offer God any of his time or talents either. In verse 14, right, he's, or in verse 18, 19, he says, hey, I have plenty. You know, uh, I have plenty stored up. I have plenty in the bank. So I'm just going to take life easy. I'm just going to live for me. I'm going to do what I want. I'm not going to offer God any part of my time. My time is my time. It's not God's time. He doesn't own my time. And then he's also saying, look, I've used my talents to amass a fortune for myself. And you know what I'm going to use that fortune on? I'm going to use that on myself. And Jesus says, look, when people live that way, it's foolish. It's foolish. because, And the premise for this whole parable is you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. In other words, what you offer to God stays in God's hand, stays eternal. So you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead by being generous toward God. Now, one last thing um, in Daniel. I want to go back to Daniel chapter 12 and make a really, really important point. Uh, well, let me before I do that, I want to wrap up this story. So, you know, what we know about this man is he wasn't interested in offering any uh, to God any of his time, any of his talents, any of his treasures. He believed those things belonged to him, not to God. And it's so easy, isn't it? in our world to get lulled into believing that God has given us our time and our talents and our treasures and in a world gone mad we want to use those things to insulate ourselves from all the trouble in the world have you guys been reading the articles about like the millionaires that are buying like islands and you know people are buying property way out in the middle of nowhere in the hopes of insulating themselves from all the trouble all the trials of our world so islands all around the world are now uh, selling for hugely inflated prices over what they were even a few years ago because of the global pandemic now um, here's why it's so important to make this observation right um, Daniel chapter 12 we're gonna look at verses 10 and 13 here's what here's what those verses say um, they say this, uh, many, well, so he's talking about these, uh, the, the, the trials, the difficulties, the, uh, these, the, the, just these bad things that are going to happen to people. And Daniel says, many will be purified, cleansed, and refined by these trials, but the wicked will continue in their wickedness, and none of them will understand. Now, I want to stop there and unpack that just for a moment because it would be easy when you read these verses to think that when he uses the word wicked he's calling them wicked because of just the bad things that they do right that God has a list and they broke the rules but I don't believe that's what's going on here at all I believe they're being called wicked because of their refusal to allow these trials to make them spiritually strong to allow these trials to cause them to press into God, to press into specifically in our day and age, the Lord Jesus Christ, and receive help and hope from Him. And 
and from the desire of the wicked just to accumulate as much as they can to themselves to insulate themselves from everything that is going on in the world. That is what makes a man or a woman wicked in this context, context, just the refusal to grow through their trials. In other words, they are people who will complain, shake an angry fist at God, refuse to to believe, and just get bitter instead of better. In other words, those trials, instead of purifying them, refining them, uh, galvanizing them, right, Um, being cleansed through them, they are going to uh, rebel. And they're just going to get bitter and insolent against God. That's what will make them wicked. See, prophecy, more than anything else, is a warning. And the wicked, they're going to experience all the same things, but they're not going to understand. They're not going to grow. They're just going to get bitter instead of better. And then he says to Daniel... But as for you, right, go your way until the end, you will rest, and then at the end of days you will rise again. Now this is an amazing phrase. This, is, this points us to our Jesus. This points us to the gospel and the good news that one day Jesus would rise from the dead so that all those who follow him would also rise from the dead and enter into the kingdom, the eternal kingdom, that Daniel's told us about over and over and over again, right? But the wicked don't respond to the warnings. Now, in 1980, I was a senior in high school, and there was a particular volcano in the news uh, in, in Washington State, it's a volcano by the name of Mount St. Helens. And this has taken some of you back, some of you who were, like me, alive in the 80s, right? And uh, it was in the news because it was billowing smoke, sending up puffs of smoke. And um, yeah, it was really, really big deal. Um, and so there was warning after warning issued about its imminent re- uh, eruption. I mean, cause, because for months it had been sending up puffs of smoke uh, hundreds of feet into the Washington sky. And warning after warning was issued about its imminent eruption. So most of the lakeside villages, the tourist camps, and the hiking trails were just, de- just dead, just completely um, empty because everybody had left because of the warnings. But there was a caretaker of a recreational lodge on Spirit Lake about five miles north of Mount St. Helens who refused to leave. And his name was Harry R. Truman. Rangers repeatedly tried to warn Harry about the danger. Neighbors begged him to join them and leave, but Harry ignored all of the warnings. In fact, in a television interview two days before Mount St. Helens erupted, Harry said this to a nationwide audience. He said, nobody knows more about this mountain than Harry, and it doesn't dare blow up on him. Two days later, on May 18, 1980, Mount Mount St. Helens erupted with a force equivalent to 1,600 times greater than the nuclear bomb the United States dropped on Hiroshima in World War II. And at 8.31 a.m., while Harry was cooking his breakfast, 
concussive waves of heat traveling faster than the speed of sound obliterated Harry and everything else for over 150 square miles, burying him instantly, what was left of him, under tons of rock and debris. See, Harry ignored the warnings. He just ignored the warnings. You know, he ignored the signs and prophecy is a warning. So it can be heeded or it can be ignored, right? Um, and so the, the choice that we have today is are we going to ignore the warnings or are we going to, a heed, to heed them? So I want to ask you, in light of Daniel's prophecy that many will be refined and purified and cleansed by these trials, will you allow the craziness going on in your life right now to make you more like Jesus? Will you allow, you know, a pandemic and fires and smoke and hurricanes and all that, will you allow all of that to make you spiritually strong? Will you allow these trials to make you a man or a woman who could be described as mighty of soul? Because uh, those who are followers of Jesus who are held in his hand, they become strong through trials, not weaker, not less. So again, I'm going to ask you one more time. Will you just allow the craziness of your life to make you spiritually strong? Will you press into Jesus? You know, will you engage in the disciplines necessary to keep becoming mighty of soul and not a spiritual weakling that gets sand kicked in your face every time something goes amiss in your life. God wants better for you than that. He wants better for me than that. And, and the best is yet to come. He says, not only do I want better, I'm here to give it to you. I'm here to see you through. I'm here to hold you in my righteous right hand. I'm here to guide you. I'm here to speak to you because my sheep know my voice and they follow me and they stay close to me and I lead them and I guide them and I give them a full life even in a world of pandemics and hurricanes and tidal waves and forest fires. I will give them a full and a meaningful life. I won't make them a people that just wring their hands and, and seclude themselves and shelter in fear and cower at what is going on in the world. No, God wants better for us than that. So will you be that man? Will you be that woman? Here's what we're going to do in a moment. Uh, the worship team's going to come up. We're going to worship together. And, uh, but in the meantime, I want to pray that we would be men and women that would be mighty of soul. Can I just pray that for you and for your family? For those of you at home, I want to pray that for you. Let's do it together. Heavenly Father, I pray that the trials going on in our world would refine and purify and cleanse your people. And God, I pray that we would be your people, that you'd make us courageous, and that we would be people that, um, you know, give you, offer up to you the very, very best of our time, our talents, our treasures, even in a global pandemic. 
Help us to be those kinds of people. I ask and pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.